If you're new here, we want to thank you for spending part of your weekend with us. We're blessed that you're visiting, and uh, we'd love you to stop at the welcome table on the way out, fill out a connection card, and we'll get you a little more information about the church. If you have a Bible, open up to Hebrews chapter 13. We're doing a series about being established in grace, and I really was just going to do one message about this, but then I realized I had a lot to say about it. And I wanted to just kind of go back over some basic things about our Christian faith. And I think that sometimes we can get distracted by a bunch of things. And, and there's lots of wonderful doctrines and wonderful things in church life. But Hebrews 13.9 says, Don't be carried away with different and strange doctrines, for it's a good thing to have your heart established with grace. Everybody say established, established. with grace. We went over this last week in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says, No man can lay a foundation other than the one that's already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. The point is that the foundation of our faith, the foundation of our walk with the Lord, is not us. It's not our works. It's not our personal goodness. It's not what we do and don't do. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the foundation of everything. All good theology is built on that foundation. If we start to build from some other foundation, then we get into what Paul described as wood, hay, and stubble. And it's not that uh, God's mad about it, but that kind of theology will eventually burn up because it doesn't avail, because it's not based on the firm foundation of Jesus. And he says, don't be carried away with different and strange doctrines. If we don't keep our eyes focused on Jesus and what Jesus accomplished for us, sometimes we can get bored, you know, not to be critical, but I think if we, if we don't really think about what Jesus did. You know, Ezekiel says you're supposed to look from the pit from which you were dug and the rock from which you were hewn. What that means is you've got to keep in your mind the the pit of sin that Jesus rescued you from. You were a sinner. Now, you're not anymore if you've accepted Jesus and you've been made a new creation, but you need to remember the pit from which you came and the rock, the rock is Jesus, from which you were hewn. So it's, I was a sinner, but now I'm a child of God. And I have to remember both of those, and I need to be able to get excited about the joy of my salvation. And if I'm not excited about the fact that I was a sinner and I deserved judgment and I just deserved hell and all these kinds of things, and yet God forgave me and loves me and moved towards me with radical kindness and mercy, if I can't keep that in the front of my mind and celebrate that, I'll begin to be distracted by different strange doctrines. Now, it's fine to research different things and know about different stuff, but, but there's lots of fads that come through the body of Christ, and not all of them are profitable, and some of them are just weird. We had a bunch of Christians get, get I don't really understand this, but con, you know, confused about this thing about whether or not the earth is round, and you know, the, the, earth, you know, the earth is round, and so uh, we love you if you were confused about that, but that... You know, that preoccupying yourself with, with watching a whole bunch of YouTube videos about why the earth is flat and all this conspirator, conspiratorial stuff, that, that doesn't profit you. Even if there was some kind of grand conspiracy, 
obsessing over that is not, it's not going to avail anything. Now that, yeah, there's not a grand conspiracy, but, any, any, but in any case, all right, uh, Jesus help us, but in, 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 in any case, uh, what needs to be at the center of my, of my thinking is not, is not those questions, it's the reality of the finished work of Jesus. We said last week that part of having our heart established in grace means learning to walk in the balance between grace and faith. Grace is what Jesus already did for us in the person of Jesus Christ, and faith is our positive response to what Jesus did. Um, the Bible describes this in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go back there and look at it really quickly. Ephesians chapter 2. And verse 8 says, For by grace you are saved through faith. It's important to note there that he doesn't say, By grace you are saved and faith. Your faith doesn't save you, really. It's grace that saves you. Your faith allows you to be saved. If you want to think about it this way, it's like there's... uh, God's in heaven and you're on the earth and there's this wall between the two of you and the wall is your decision making and your will. And what God wants to do is reach down from heaven and save you. But in order for that to happen, you have to open up a a portal, a hole in the wall and allow Him to reach down and grab you. So the arm of God reaches through the hole of faith to, to save people. Does that make sense? So somebody described it this way that, you know, the Bible, we, we sing that song about Jesus going to save the one and leaving the 99, right? Well, how does he save the sheep? The sheep's down in a pit, he says. And, and so Jesus is going to go down in that pit and he's going to pick the sheep up and carry it, uh, you know, to safety. Well, that's, that's grace. What did the sheep do? The sheep allowed himself to be carried. That really a lot of time is the extent of faith. It's just just keep believing God and just keep trusting that he's going to save you. My works are not going to save me. Jesus, Jesus has saved me. By grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, even the faith isn't from you, it's a gift from God. Now some people overemphasize faith, and if you do that, you get into works. So he says, not of works, lest any man should boast. You didn't earn your salvation. You don't earn your blessing. You don't earn anything from God. If you did, then you could brag about it. But nobody's bragging before God. Nobody's in heaven saying, wow, look how I got here on my own. Overemphasizing faith leads to works. But then there's the other side. Sometimes people overemphasize grace. And so he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. What's that mean? Do your works save you? No, but once you're saved, you do good works. I was listening to, I was at a meeting one time and, and we were all talking about our destiny and what God had called us to do. And there was a man there and he said, the only thing I'm called to do is receive 
all the wonderful blessings that God has for me. And I'm, and I'm like, well, sort of. I preach this, that the, that the primary calling on your life is just to be loved by God and receive His love. That's true. The, primary, the most important thing in your life is to be the object of God's affection. That's why He created you. But the Bible does say that we're, created unto, we're recreated unto good works. So there's a balance. I'm not a dead sea where I'm just receiving and I'm never giving out. And if you have no sense of destiny or purpose, I don't think that's very good. So this is what we call balanced teaching. And, and, it, and it's not actually, you know, it's, it's like meat and potatoes. How many of you love going to Sheridan's? Nobody. One per, my wife. Hallelujah. We might go. Sheridan's. It's amazing. You can go to the frozen custard. You know, my, wife, my kids like to get the gummy worms in there. I don't know why you would do that. But, but Sheridan's is great. And you can go, but you can't eat that every day for all the meals, right? Now, you can, you can take a really strong stance on grace or faith, and you can say a bunch of radical stuff, and people will, will get excited about it, and, and you, know, you can be controversial and popular at the same time. But I'm not real concerned about that. What I'm concerned about is just being healthy. So you want to keep it... You, you want to be balanced, and you want to keep it in order. So the order is, I receive the love of God. And it's totally unmerited. I don't deserve it. I don't work for it. I just receive. If I don't have anything to give, don't try to work it up. Go receive, right? But if you're receiving and you're never giving, then something's messed up. And so you, you are created unto good works. Is everybody all right with that? So we went over all that a couple weeks ago, or last week. So now what I want to do is talk to you about how the theology of grace affects our prayer life. And I, I uh, realized I haven't spent much time talking about this, and so we're going to do this for a couple weeks probably. And uh, I, want to, I want to help us grow in prayer. Do you know that you can grow in prayer? God loves it when we pray. I love it when my kids talk to me. Prayer is just talking to God. I love it when my kids talk to me. Sometimes they say stuff that does not make a lot of sense. They're five, three, and one. Sometimes they say stuff, you know, that, that's not proper grammar. Sometimes they ask questions and I'm like, that... That there's not even a way to answer that because it's not a rational question. Uh, you know, they, they, their communication skills are at the level that they're at, right? But I'm not mad about any of that. I enjoy the conversation. But my hope is that as they grow up, that our, you know, our conversations will likewise grow. That'll become more sophisticated. So as a Christian, I want to grow in my prayer life with God. And I, I want to recognize that, that uh, there are some ways to pray that are more effective and more scriptural than others. Now, this is not a criticism or a condemnation of praying in a way that's, that's less scriptural or whatever, but I need to recognize that, that uh, I can grow 
in prayer. You know, uh, Josh down here, he worked with me for Andrew Womack Ministries, and we'd answer the phones, and we'd pray with people all day long. And after I left to go uh, be an associate for Pastor Lawson, Josh got promoted, and he was a prayer mentor. And what that meant was he quit praying with people all day long, and instead he listened to people pray with other people all day long, and then he coached them about how to pray better. And, you know, now some of you are like, well, how can, you can't pray better. Well, yeah, yeah, you can. <laughs> okay, because, because a, lot of, a lot of prayer, and it, in that context, it's, it's relational, and it's about ministry and how you talk to people. And you can get better at how you communicate truth to people. And you can pray more effective prayers. And it's a little bit, it's a little unsettling. You know, the first time I sat down in a room with a, a guy and they listened to me pray for somebody and then he, you know, scored me on it. And I thought that's, that doesn't seem real spiritual. Uh, but I had, to, I had to humble myself and realize, you know, I'm not sure I'm necessarily into the whole scoring thing, but, but the, the reality is we can, we can grow in the way that we present truth to people. We can get better at it. And sometimes people will tell me, you know, I got, I got this prophetic word for somebody and I told it to them and they didn't receive it. And that could be on them, but I've, I've listened to how they gave it and I'm like, well, it's not a wonder they didn't receive it. Because the way you said it was mean. And then sometimes people will say, well, God told me to say it that way. Well, probably not. Okay, because very seldom is God dictating actual words to you. Occasionally he may, but usually he's inspiring some thought or feeling on the inside, and then you have to go through the perspiration of how to communicate it to somebody else. And you can get better at that process. And the unwillingness to do that is pride. I can get better as a communicator from teaching. This is why I listen to myself and critique myself. Everybody okay? So we're going to try to learn to become more effective at, at praying. Now look, now I'm going to do a disclaimer. I already kind of did a disclaimer, but we're going to do another disclaimer because I love disclaimers. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Well, just read it on the screen. It says, Now concerning the things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. The most important part there is the last part. It says, Knowledge puffs up but charity edifies. Okay, what's that mean? I'm going to teach you some stuff. I'm going to give you some knowledge. The temptation may be to become puffed up and think, well, now I can pray better than other people. That's not the point. And I don't need anybody to become the prayer police. We don't need, we don't need that here. Okay? The point is not, is not so that we can look at other people and think, well, why are they praying that way? No, it's, it's for our own benefit so that we can grow and pray effectively. Okay? So we're not, we're, we're not into looking at where other people are on their, their spiritual journey and having, you know, condemning them or puffing ourselves up or whatever. 
Do you know that sometimes the people with the greatest character in the kingdom have, have the least amount of knowledge? As far as, you know, people, a lot of times people will go and get a lot of knowledge in, in uh, you know, theological school and stuff, and they'll educate the, the faith right out of those people. And not, now, not always, but sometimes that happens. So knowledge and character are not the same thing. What do you think God's more impressed with? Character, your heart, right? So we want to speak the truth in, in love and, and all this. So uh, it's going to take me a couple weeks to really get through all this. But what, the main point that I want to make this week is that prayer under the new covenant is different than prayer under the old covenant. And the reason for that is that the covenant itself is totally different. It's a different kind of covenant, which means that the kind of prayer that I do is, is going to look different. So let's just look at what the Bible says about that. Uh, Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 9. It says, okay, so uh, there's people in all different parts. So I got, I'm going to try to go, go slow through all this. So in the, in the Old Testament, when the Bible talks about the Old Covenant and the, and the law and stuff, it's talking about the law of Moses. It's talking about what Moses received from God, the 616 or some odd commandments that he got from Mount Sinai. And it's written down in the end of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, primarily Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means second law. It's the the second giving of the law. In Deuteronomy, it reads like a, like a contract, a covenant from that time period. And so, you know, how many of you own, have a mortgage? No, no, okay. You guys are, it's okay to be honest. All right, have a mortgage. Thank you. All right, nothing bad will happen to you. I promise. Okay, so when you, when you got this mortgage, there's a, a contract that is written between you and, and the bank, whoever owns your loan, right? And there are various provisions in the contract. And it says the amount that you owe. It says the amount that you're supposed to pay every month. It says what will happen once you've paid off the full amount. And it also says what will happen if you fail to pay that amount every month. Have you ever looked at that? And if you, you fail to pay, first of all, you're going to have to pay a penalty, and then you're going to have to pay a bigger penalty. And then, and then all of a sudden you're going to be uh, in foreclosure. And then eventually, if you don't pay, they can take your house away. Right? And so why can they do that? It's because, it's because there's a written contract. And when you signed the paper, you agreed to it. So it's not random. You can't, you can't go to the bank and say, well, I never heard this was going to happen. Now, you might not have read the contract, but you should have. Because it says that in there and you signed it. And the, and the lawyers don't care about whether or not you read it. So if your name's on it, you're, you're liable. Okay, so in the Old Covenant, there was this written contract between God and specifically the nation of Israel. And it had all sorts of provisions. It had provisions for blessing. If you do all these commandments, there'll be various blessings that come upon you. Deuteronomy 28. But it also says very specific things will occur if you, if you don't keep the commandments and you go into idolatry and all these sorts of things. And he says, let's actually, I, I got ahead of myself. Let's, let's read uh, Leviticus 26. Let's do it this way. 
Leviticus 26.18. So this is one of the provisions in the Old Covenant. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Leviticus 26.18 says, And if you will not yet for all this hearken unto me, I will punish you seven times more for your sins. All right, everybody, everybody see that verse? So that's, that's part of this written contract. If you read all that, a lot of times people don't understand the Old Testament because I understand, but it can be hard to get through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy because some of that's difficult to read, but you really ought to read all of it because if you read and understand it, the rest of the Old Testament makes a ton of sense because all God's doing is just making good on what the contract says. And so one of the things he says, it's really specific, is, is if you're not listening to me and I'm bringing judgment. So he said, I'm going to bring plagues, I'm going to bring famine, I'm going to bring these things. If you don't, if you don't listen, I'm going to punish you even more. And one of the ways I'll punish you is I'll bring, I'll bring this foreign nation and they'll oppress you and they'll take away your children and they'll put you under bondage. So everybody see the word punish right there? Yeah. What does that mean? It means God is actively doing something to, to judge people for their failures. Everybody with me? So he says, that's what I'm going to do. Well, that, that doesn't sound, that sounds harsh. Well, it's not very fun. And you read, that's what happened to them. All right, now let's go over to, to, to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. It says, but now... Now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also He is a mediator of a better covenant. Everybody say better covenant. Better. So is it, is it worse or better? better? Is it the same or better? better? Okay, I know this. You have to have somebody help you misunderstand this. <laughs> by how much also He is a mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Now, are the promises better or worse? Better. They're better. Are they the same or worse? Better. They're, they're better. Some of you are getting this. <laughs> Pastor, why are you laboring over this? Because, because as much, this to me is one of the plainest doctrines in the entire Bible. It's what Galatians is about. It's what a lot of Romans, a lot of Hebrews is about, that we're in a new covenant. And yet, and yet a lot of the church believes that we're basically under the same covenant. And it's simply not the case. So it says, for if that first covenant had been faultless. Well, that's, that says that the old covenant had a problem. Now, the problem wasn't really the covenant. It was the fact that people couldn't keep it. And they didn't keep it. And God didn't like that because God's a God of grace and love. And He didn't, he didn't even want to, if you read it, He didn't even want to give them the law. They demanded it. They demanded it. And so anyway, uh, and for the 2,000 or so ever how many years leading up to the law, God wasn't punishing people for their sins. It's an important thing to notice. In Romans 5, it says that. But it, I'll deal with that maybe later. But anyway, so it says, 
If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no place found for the second. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. A new covenant. Not the same covenant. A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, why does that apply to you? Well, because he, he, he says the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Where does, where does Jesus descend from? Judah, right? And so, uh, and if you're in Jesus, then you're in covenant. All right, And he says, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not. So it says it's not going to be like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Everybody see that? So what was the old covenant like? Well, I'm going to punish you for your sins. Well, now let's read what the, what the new covenant's like. For this is the covenant that I will make with them in the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in your mind and in your heart, and I will be to them a God, and you will be to me a people. So he's talking about my personal relationship with everybody. That was different. And he says, and you'll not teach every man his neighbor, and they'll all know me. Now, verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities, Will I remember no more? Yeah. Now, so you understand that's a, a polar opposite what, what he said in Leviticus. In the Old Covenant, I'm going to punish you for your sins. That's the written provision. In the New Covenant, the written provision is, I forgive you. And I'm not going to punish you. And I'm not even going to remember it. Man, that ought to make you happy. That ought to make it to where you don't care about researching flat earth on the, on the YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, I, I, I've known this for a long time, and that still makes me want to run around. Because is God just in punishing people for sin? Sure he is. But it's not who he is. He's a God of mercy, and He's a God of, of, of forgiveness. And He says, look, I'm not going to remember it. That's what the, the new covenant is. It's sin is gone. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So what's that mean then? Well, that, that changes how we pray in the New Testament. Do you know why it changes how we pray? Because in the Old Testament, people were being punished for their sins, and so they would pray to God to lift the punishment off. But if you're not being punished for your sins, is there any reason to pray that God would lift the punishment off? No, there's not. Now, if you've done that, or you know people are doing that, is God mad at them? No, and do we need to look down on them and think they don't know what they're doing? No. But at the same time, we don't, God is not punishing people. So 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing, not punishing, not holding their trespasses against them. Well, I mean, that's pretty exciting. 
So the difference between, <coughs> I'm still going through a little bit of puberty apparently, but <laughs> I'm, a lot, I'm a lot better than I was last week. But the, the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is that the Old Covenant, it was, it was based on your works and your effort and whether or not you kept the law. And they were trying to earn blessing and stave off judgment. And so in the Old Covenant, you find lots of prayers. In, in, the, in the old Bible times, the Old Testament, you'll find lots of prayers from people asking God to bless them and asking God to quit judging them. So let's read two. We'll just put them on the screen for, for speed. First Chronicles 4.10, this is the famous prayer of Jabez. But it says at the beginning, 1 Chronicles 4.10 says, Bless me indeed. Oh, that you would bless me. Everybody see that? Oh, that you would bless me indeed. Why is he asking that? Well, because his, his covenant with God said that his blessings were contingent on his performance. And so he was, he was asking to be blessed. But what does Ephesians 1.3 say in the New Covenant? Let's look at it. Look at it in your Bible. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Everybody see that? Past tense. Has blessed us. With how many blessings? All spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Okay, so in, what's this mean? It means, I, as a Christian, I want to spend less time praying for God to bless me and more time believing that I'm already blessed. That's simple, isn't it? Now, if, now when, you do, when you understand that, like I still bless my food, but you know what I do? I bless it. I say, I bless this food in the name of Jesus. Do you know why? Because I'm blessed. And if you're blessed, that means you have the ability to confer blessing. Now, if you pray and ask God to bless your food, does that mean you aren't as mature a Christian? Or the, no. Just, just, we're not the prayer police. Okay, I'm just trying to help you understand how the new covenant works. Now, in 1 Chronicles 21, the opposite happened. In 1 Chronicles 21, um, David, the, the devil, comes against David and stirs him up and tells him to take a census. Now, you could take a census in the Old Covenant. That wasn't a problem. But there is a problem. There's a provision in Deuteronomy that says the king's not supposed to multiply chariots unto himself. The idea being that the king's faith is not supposed to be in his military might. It's supposed to be in Jesus. And it appears that David at the end of his life was starting to rest on his laurels and feel really good about all that he'd accomplished and he wanted Joab to go out there and tell him how big his army was so he could feel good about himself. And, and God brought a plague on the nation of Israel because of that. And if you read 1 Chronicles 21 verses 26 through 27. I won't go there because we're running out of time. But he, he prays and he says, God, don't judge these people. I'm the one that sinned. And then he builds an altar and he offers a sacrifice. And in Samuel it says, and God was entreated for the land. And the plague was lifted. Okay, now why was the plague there? 
It's not random. It's because there was a written contract between God and the nation of Israel that said if you do certain things, plagues will come on you. Everybody with me? And so what do you do about that? Well, you, you humble yourself and you pray so that the plague will be lifted off. And that's what David did. Is that, is it, so, I mean, that's all pretty clear, I think. Okay, now, now, what do you do, though, about the New Testament? Well, look over, look over at 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. I think this is one of the more misunderstood verses in the Bible. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. So it says this, If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Well, what's that about? That's, that's somebody who wrote Chronicles looking back on what David did and recognizing here's a spiritual principle. The spiritual principle is we, the nation of Israel, have a contract with God. And this contract says if we screw up, there might be a plague. And the way to deal with that plague is to humble yourself, pray, confess your sins, and then the plague will be lifted. Okay. That makes total sense in the context, in the context of the Old Covenant. The trouble is that we tend to use this verse to try to pray about issues in our world, in our, in our country, and, and think that this will fix them. Now, now I'm, I'm, all, I'm happy to pray and humble ourselves and confess our sins, okay? But like, like last, yesterday we did this, we did this walk for life, uh, you know, being pro-life and all this. And so we're trying to end abortion, praise God. And I'm thankful for all these, these uh, laws that are being passed and stuff that are restricting abortion and stuff. But... Um, if, I, if I use this verse to try to end abortion, the implication is that the abortion is there because of God. Okay, because, because here's, here's, here's what this is saying. If God is punishing you, the way to get rid of the punishment is to humble yourself, confess your sins, and the punishment will be lifted. Is abortion a punishment from God? No. Now, why is there abortion? Well, because, because people want it. Okay, so I'm not trying to be critical, but I'm trying to help us understand why, why abortion isn't gone yet, and, and yet lots of people have done lots of humbling and praying. Okay, what's got to happen for abortion to leave? People's minds have to change. So can I pray about this issue? Absolutely. But I don't want to pray with the idea that it's God's fault. And then I'm trying to get God to sovereignly fix it. If God sovereignly brings a plague, then He's the problem and I want to humble myself and then, and then the plague will be lifted. But He's not doing that under this covenant. And so what do I, does that mean we don't pray for the nation? No, we, we absolutely pray. All right, we pray for our leaders to have wisdom. We pray for the blindness to come off of people's hearts that they can see truth. We pray against the demonic strongholds, the wrong ways of thinking that are in people's hearts. We pray that people would come to know Jesus. But we do more than that. We tell people about Jesus. 
And we, and, we stand, and we stand for truth, and we tell people the truth about, you know, human life and the value of all that, and, and, and that's how things change. Yeah. So I'm not trying to kill anybody's sacred cow. I'm just trying to help, I'm just trying to help you understand what, you know, what we're thinking about when we're praying. Okay? When, when we're praying under grace, we've got to realize that God is not the problem. God's not the problem. God's, God's for me. God loves me. God wants, you know, nobody wants abortion gone down here more than God. Amen. Right? So, so it's, not, it's not His fault if it's still hanging around. So we, we and so that lots of other things are like that on, on the planet Earth as well. Okay. Well, I ended it there because that was... Where the time is. So we will uh, pick it up there next week and I'll try to explain some of those things more. Everybody all right? Yeah. So I hope that was helpful. The whole point is that, that the, the new covenant's different. Do you know that if you go over to England, you can't drive on the right side of the road? I mean, you can, but you're going to be in a world of hurt. So there are different laws in a different kingdom. And, and we're in a different kingdom now because Jesus came and he established a new kingdom and there's different ways of doing things. And really what we do in the new covenant, you talk, you talk to the mountain about God more than you talk to God about the mountain. Meaning that you don't think God's the problem. You realize the problem's the problem. Okay. Well, I think I, I, think I made people mad, but it's all right. Let's all stand up. Jesus loves us anyway. My prayer team could come down. I'm going to pray for everybody. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we just love you. We bless you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this new covenant that we have in Jesus. We thank you that we get to pray and we get to believe you for breakthrough in our nation and wholeness in families and lives. And Lord, help us to understand your grace and have a firm foundation of that. We just thank you for that and we receive it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. If you need personal prayer, come down. My prayer team would love to pray with you. Remember, uh, buy a shirt on your way out. They're $5. If you need um, uh, a shirt for the baseball team, make sure you get that first. If you want to meet Molly and I, we'll be right down front.